Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, part of the New Books Network. My name is Rob Wolf, and this is my first podcast as your host. I'm a writer, and I'm the author of a new science fiction series. It's called The Kronos Chronicles. And if you're curious, which of course I hope you are, you can find books one and two. They're called The Alternate Universe and The Escape on Amazon. Now, like many listeners, I imagine, I started reading science fiction and fantasy novels when I was a kid. One of the first I remember was Dune, which I thought was totally amazing when I read it in fifth grade, but that was a long, long time ago in what feels like a galaxy far, far away. My mission now is to bring to your attention the science fiction and fantasy writers of today, and I'm hoping to give new books in science fiction and fantasy a little more energy and excitement than it's had lately, so please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And stay tuned for lots of fascinating interviews with both new authors and established authors. Which brings me to today's guest, Greg Van Eekout, author of California Bones, which is his newest book, just out in June. He's also the author of short stories, middle-grade fantasy books, and the urban fantasy novel Norse Code. Greg, I'm so glad you can join me today for this bi-coastal conversation. Uh, Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. So just if anyone wants to picture this, uh, Greg's in California, I'm in New York, and we're talking over Skype. And a minute ago, it was pouring rain here, and if it starts again, listeners will probably hear that in the background. But right now, it sounds kind of quiet. In any event, I suppose if it were raining, it wouldn't be inappropriate, because water is almost like one of the characters in California Bones, which has a very interesting setting, and I thought, Greg, maybe you want to give listeners a sense of the setting of California Bones, which which has Los Angeles as a backdrop, which I understand is where you grew up, but it's a very different kind of Los Angeles than the non-magical Los Angeles most of us are used to. Uh, Yeah, I'm an L.A. kid. Uh, It is a different Los Angeles. Uh, I just sort of proceeded from the idea that uh, if magic existed, it would make the world a very different place. So I wanted to signal right off the bat how different it was. So what I did is I got rid of the cars and the streets and the freeways in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is almost all street and freeway with buildings sort of jammed between them. So that represents a significant difference. So instead what you have is you have a canal system. There is a canal system in Los Angeles, the Venice Canals, which were built in the early 20th century by a guy named Abbott Kinney. But they are very small, and they were kind of built just sort of as a a tourist attraction and uh, just sort of a a marketing thing. Um, I'm positing that the canals in Los Angeles are the entire transportation system. Instead of freeways, you have elevated flumeways, and you have complicated systems of locks. And wherever there's a road, you'll have a canal. And in a way, that doesn't make sense because Los Angeles is essentially a desert. 
water is very difficult to get there. But on the other hand, you do have the Pacific Ocean. So it made sense to me that if you wanted to have a water-based transportation system, you could fuel it from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it serves a story purpose because the canals are sort of designed in to the shape of a labyrinth or a mandala or a magical sigil and are run by the water mage or hydromancer William Maholland. Maholland is a historical figure. He was the head of the thing that became the Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles, and he's sort of the second most powerful guy in Los Angeles. Uh, the first most powerful is a guy called the Hierarch, and uh, he is what I call an osteomancer. The basic idea of the book is that wizards get their powers from eating the remains of magical creatures. So if you were to eat the bones of, say, a dragon, you would get some of the abilities of the dragon. You might get their imperviousness because of dragon scales or maybe even the ability to breathe fire. So the people that practice this magic are called, are called osteomancers. And Los Angeles is a particularly rich source or center of osteomancy because of the La Brea Tar Pits. So they're pretty famous, but if you don't know what they are, in the middle of Los Angeles, and this is a real thing, in the middle of Los Angeles, there are these deposits of tar, and over the, the millennia, they've accumulated um, mammoth bones and mastodon bones and woolly rhinoceros bones, saber-toothed tiger bones, dire wolf bones. So that's all real. And then the twist I took is that they also have accumulated dragon bones and griffin bones and basilisk bones and things like that. So those are the major differences. The other major difference is that Southern California and Northern California have both broken off from the United States. And then each of them has formed an independent kingdom that's, uh, at, if not at open war with each other, they're certainly rivals of each other and have a sort of uncomfortable, hostile relationship. So... In urban fantasy, you can do it a couple of ways. You can do it that magic exists, but uh, not many people know about it. So there are werewolves, but only a few people know this secret. Or you can do it that everybody knows. There are werewolves. Everybody knows about it. But it doesn't fundamentally change the fabric of your reality in day-to-day -day life. And then there's the next extreme, which is the way I went, which is everything is different because of that one thing, magic existing, that's uh, an alteration of our actual world. Well, and I found it kind of fascinating that you melded the familiar with the magical and as you say you know referring to real historical figures like Mulholland you also have uh, the Hollywood movie industry there is a character by the name of Disney and hey. you refer to a lot of other old time movie moguls by name although in your world they seem to have built their fortunes not so much on the magic of storytelling but literally on magic and I was wondering, actually, about the implications of that, that their wealth and fame in, in your story really wasn't legitimately earned. And the sort of dog-eat-dog -dog metaphor that people might use for Hollywood or maybe just America in general is a, is a literal one in your book where the osteomancers, the, the magicians, actually eat other osteomancers to acquire their, their magical strength. And I wondered if you wanted to say a little something about, you know, what what you're communicating there. Yeah, it's literally um, eat or be eaten kind of world, and there's a lot of incentive to eat people. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I assume that the, I call the, the Hollywood osteomancers, they're the glamour mages. And I, I assume that they probably, since they're in competition with each other, do have to actually work on making entertainments that people are going to find appealing. But in, in the case of Disney, for example, his theaters and the theme park, also uh, what they do is they take 
uh, unicorn horn, and they grind it into a very fine powder, and they mist it into the atmosphere. So if you're in a theater showing one of Disney's movies, you're also getting uh, a hit of magic, and you're going to feel happy. And if you're in a theme park, you're going to feel like you're at the happiest place on Earth. There could be some metaphor that magic is a drug, but that's been done a lot, and I didn't really want to push that. I think more likely magic is a natural resource or it's money. It's something that the more you have, uh, the more power you have. And the more power you have, the easier it is to get even more power. And it, it's uh, it, in that it is a limited resource. It's a consumable. It kind of gives you incentive to be a bit brutal and a bit exploitative because the only way to acquire more of it is basically to take it from someone else. And mostly I was doing it, I, you know, there, there, there is a little bit of serious intent behind it, you know. I mean, this is one of the books that I'm trying to say a little bit of something, make a little bit of commentary, but also it's just kind of fun. It's just kind of a fun concept to, to think about how a Disney in this world or, or any of the, the old-time Hollywood uh, moguls or the current Hollywood moguls, uh, how they might operate if if magic were a real thing that they could use. And are you worried that it might affect the sellability of the movie rights? If you're, uh, I mean, I'm joking, of course, denigrating <laughs> the Disney's of the world for sort of cheating their their. Uh, with... It's possible that that removes one market. Um, but the film rights are being shopped around so far. I, nobody said like that it's unsellable because of that. I just read an interesting story, and there was I wish I could remember the name of the movie, but there was a movie based on the MIT mathematicians that would go into the Vegas casinos and game the system basically by using their math skills. And the agent that sold that film didn't try to sell it to uh, MGM because the MGM casinos were some of the casinos that these mathematicians hit. And the person at MGM said, no, we think it's a great story. We'll tell it anyway. So uh, I don't know if that's a consideration or not. Hopefully, if anybody has any film interest, it, it won't just be one guy at Disney that's like, nope, can't do it because my boss will yell at me. And of course, they could buy it and take it out if they wanted to, or at least suggest that they, that be taken out. You know, they could just take out Disney and sub in the head of some studio that is a rival who they hate. Yes, that would be an easy enough element to skip or, or to change. You hear that, Disney? So, yeah, you can change that if, if you want to buy the movie. Go ahead and change that. Sold. Sold. I get a cut for suggesting. Okay, fair enough. Sure. Now, I haven't read Norse Code, but I know that in that book, which came out in 2009, you blended Valkyries and Norse mythology into a contemporary setting. And I was wondering if you can talk just a little bit about your interest in using myths and magic and weaving those things into your writing. Well, I've, I've always had, in one form or another, uh, an interest in mythological uh, creatures and, and mythological people. You know, and it probably starts from, like, bad cartoons, like, you know, uh, the, the Captain Marvel live-action thing that used to be on CBS, you know, Shazam in the, I don't know, that was the early 80s. And from there was an old Hercules cartoon that was bad, but it just, that stuff seemed cool. So when I started reading mythology, it just seemed like, uh, it just, you know, it actually it seemed like it just sort of blended into, like, comic books to me. Like, the superheroes and the gods, the gods actually, or often actually were characters in, in the comics, like Thor and, you know. So it just all seemed like one sort of big fantasy world, that the myths were fantasy and Lord of the Rings was fantasy and, 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 and all that. So it just seemed kind of logical that, you know, it would be like a rich area to, to mine from. And 
I took a, a college class in Viking civilization and another one in the Icelandic saga, and that kind of particularly stirred me towards the Norse stuff, which I thought was just, I don't know, because for some reason fantasy that takes place in snow and has giants and stuff like that seemed more interesting to me than the Greek stuff, which seemed like their lives were just, I don't know, a little more comfortable and easy maybe. Yeah, with Norse code, that actually came from a sort of a science fictional idea. This is a real thing. There's a genomics company, and they traced the DNA of Genghis Khan to his uh, current descendants. And it turns out there's a lot of them. So I thought, like, wow, if you could do the Genghis Khan, wouldn't it be interesting to do it to a god like Odin, who had actually, in the myths, had traveled the earth and had, had, uh, had a lot of kids, had, had fooled around a lot. So the idea of Norse code was that if you needed to build an army of warriors... And if you were a Valkyrie, your job, instead of going through battlefields and picking through fields of the dead, would be to go through DNA and try to find descendants of Odin who would have sort of a proclivity to perhaps, you know, have some of the uh, their progenitors, uh, you know, skill swinging a blade or throwing a spear or something. It's it's kind of a, a weird idea when you think about it, but it's if you start with the basic idea, it kind of logically grows out from that. Yeah, sure. And everyone's fascinated by their DNA, and everyone wants to be related to someone famous from the past. Yeah, I did the I did the genomics test, the twenty three and Me thing, where they give you your so they sequence your DNA, and uh, I'm related to nobody famous, and I probably come from good clerical stock. <laughs> lot of bookkeepers well if we go back far enough i guess we're all related to the primordial eve you know sure if we go back like less far we're, we probably are actually all related to Genghis khan because you know he had like dozens and dozens if not hundreds of kids so we're probably all related to him somehow they tend to do that those gods and tyrants have lots of kids they do have lots of kids and that's because after they're done spearing people they don't have to do any domestic chores so they have a lot of time on their hands perfect so let's talk about Daniel Blackland. He's the protagonist of California Bones, and he's an interesting guy. In your book, you, you say that, you know, he doesn't just do magic or no magic, but he is magic. And I wonder if you want to explain a little bit about, you know, what that is, what that means. Well, yeah, so osteomancy, again, it works by consuming the remains of, ex of extinct magical creatures, and you get their abilities that way. So you are what you eat in this world. So the first level of osteomancy is to consume a bone and get the powers of that creature. And a higher level, though, of osteomancy is to, in a sense, as much as possible, become that creature. So you're not just using magical abilities. That magic is really part of you. It's in your cells. It's part of who you are. You become magic. So that's kind of the highest ideal to, to achieve. Osteomancy, it's not just a matter of eating stuff and you get their powers. You have to learn to identify where the magic is in, in a bone. Not every bone is going to have osteomancy properties. Uh, you have to learn how to prepare that bone. So you have to learn how to you know, heat it to what temperature, how to mix it, how to grind it. And then you have to train your metabolism to actually be able to metabolize that magic. Not everybody is as effective at it as uh, everybody else. So Daniel Blackland's father was a guy named Sebastian Blackland was uh, a really powerful and really accomplished osteomancer, and he raised Daniel to be the same. So when it says in the book that Daniel is magic, that's his father's ideal for Daniel. He wants Daniel to, as much as possible, to be as much magic as he can be. It, it's the ideal of osteomancy. It's not necessarily the reality of every osteomancer. And it's interesting because the father presumably is 
looking out for Daniel's interests by doing this. He wants, he's concerned about his son's future, but it's kind of a mixed blessing. I mean, it's a complicated relationship, one that ends prematurely. And I don't think I'm revealing too much because it's, it's really at the outset of the book, but yeah. you know, mm-hmm. his father is killed in a sort of Voldemortian way, I guess. I mean, something <sighs> we're a little familiar with where the, 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 the evil, the most evil one, the hierarch, uh, you know, kills him. <laughs> yeah, the hierarch eats him. He, he breaks into uh, Sebastian's house and he eats Sebastian right in front of Daniel. So, yeah, Sebastian is a bit of a complicated character, even though he's not really on the pa- on in the book for that many pages. He does legitimately want to give Daniel the skills he needs to survive and thrive in this world. I mean, he knows it's an eat-or-be-eaten world, so he'd rather Daniel be the guy that eats people rather than be eaten. Uh, But he's also a really ambitious osteomancer. He's interested in... It's not... Osteomancy isn't a science, but if it were a science, Sebastian Blackland would be, like, a cutting-edge researcher. He's interested in how osteomancy works and how it can be used. So I think part of his interest in his preparation of Daniel is actually... uh, to fulfill his ambitions as being a great osteomancer. So it's a little complicated there. And it goes back to one of the the underlying themes. In a way, since people use each other by using their magic and eating their magic, and they use each other in all the ways people use each other, Sebastian is also using Daniel in a way to fulfill his ambitions while legitimately wanting to give him, you know, these the skills to, to survive and to get, get along in the world. But in giving him those skills, he sort of makes him a marked man. He becomes a valuable person to want to eat, I guess, in this world, because he has he contains so much magic himself. That's the price of power. The, the price of power is that you become uh, desirable. It's sort of like the gunslinger. Once you're like the, the, the hot gunslinger, the other younger gunslingers come shooting for you. There's another character in the book, Gabriel Argent, who is sort of, uh, I wouldn't call him Daniel's antagonist, but he's Daniel's foil. And he's also the son of an osteomancer, in, in this case his mother. And she made the conscious decision to not train Gabriel up in osteomancy and to not give him uh, those abilities precisely because she did not want him to become an item on some other osteomancer's menu. But as a result, he has, uh, when he gets mixed up, in the world of osteomancy, and he gets mixed up with the high powers of Los Angeles. He doesn't have the same defenses Daniel has. So it's it's sort of an interesting approach to child rearing. Which skills do you give your child, and what are the cost of those skills? I think it was interesting, too, the, the various ways family relationships are portrayed and and kind of their complexity. I mean, Daniel, on the one hand, is, of course, very upset and traumatized by his father's death, and yet he's not as vengeful as one might think as well. At least that doesn't seem to be motivating him for a good part of the book. No, he's, he's, no. he's smart. Uh, he's, he, uh, you know, you could, it would have been very easy to make him the, the vengeful son looking to avenge his father's death. But Daniel is kind of more interested in surviving. He lives underground. You know, he's, I mean, not literally underground, but he's, he's on the underground. He lives under assumed, assumed identities. He's powerful, but he doesn't go flashing his power around precisely because he does not want to attract attention to himself. He works as a thief. That's, that's how he, he makes his living as a thief. He would much rather accumulate a nice big nest egg so that he can actually one day buy his way out of Southern California, preferably with his friends and loved ones, and opt out of the entire power struggle of Los Angeles. That would be his, his 
utmost desire. There was a short story version that preceded the novel called The Osteomancer's Son, and there was a line where uh, the hierarch, you know, accuses him of being a vengeful son, and Daniel responds like, no, because vengeful sons don't live long lives, and Daniel ultimately would like to live a long life. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, you, if you don't mind. Uh, You have an interesting heritage. Uh, I was reading your biography. You're the child of Dutch and Indonesian parents. I wonder you know, how, how that might have informed your work as a writer, informed your, your life? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, my parents are both Dutch Indonesian, so they're called Indos. Um, Indonesia was a Dutch colony, so the Dutch intermarried with the Indonesians, and their descendants are Dutch Indonesians or Inda. And uh, when my parents immigrated to the United States in uh, the early 60s, there really wasn't a big Dutch Indonesian community. So you just sort of settle wherever you settle uh, and you kind of grow up not really identifying strongly with your national or ethnic or, or racial background. And it's it's really only been since I've started writing novels, particularly with the middle grade books, that I've started to think, examine, so I'm like, well, how did, you know, how did being a, a kid of immigrants who don't live in a strong immigrant community and don't uh, aren't, aren't really steeped in your own culture, how does that affect you? Uh, and I think I'm just kind of starting to see it come out in like really subtle ways in my writing. And then sometimes, you know, I get uh, invited to anthologies that are themed on diversity, you know, diverse characters, uh, writers from diverse backgrounds. And it's sort of interesting to see how my work fits in with other writers work because it really seems to be about the person who is, who's not quite, uh, of the mainstream American culture, uh, but almost is. So it's these characters who almost fit in, but not exactly. So again, it's, it's pretty vague in my head how this all fits in and how it, uh, emerges in my fiction, but it's something that I'm actually starting to be interested in looking at in a conscious way. In terms of California bones, the only thing I try to do is I try to make sure that my cast uh, they're not all um, white people from European extraction because the cities I live in don't look like that. Uh, my communities of friends don't look like that. So it's it's not a big deal, but you're going to have at least as many brown people in my books as you're going to have white people. Well, I thought it was interesting. I think you only make reference once to the fact that Daniel Blackland himself is brown towards the end and, you know, maybe made me question my assumptions or my picture of him. And then I heard that and I thought, oh, yeah, of course, he could be any color because I don't think you ever mentioned what his color is. You know, and I do the same thing. You know, there's the, the phenomenon of the unmarked state when you don't mention a character's ethnicity or race. The majority of people will tend to default to white, and I find myself doing the same thing. So I don't mention it very often. And what I try to do, if I'm going to mention characters' skin color at all in their descriptions, is to also describe the white people as being white. It's just one tiny little thing that I think edges towards a a more diverse view of the way uh, casts of characters ought to be composed. You've got two more books coming in the series, is that right? That's right. Uh, book two is Pacific Fire, and that's coming out January 27th. And then book three does not have a title yet, and I'm struggling to come up with one. And that'll probably be out sometime around September 2015. So uh, I think that's only about eight months between books. So that's a that's a fairly fast release schedule. So hopefully uh, people will have enough time to learn that book one exists before book two comes out. 
and by hopefully by the time book three comes out, people definitely will have found out that book one exists. Well, it's always better maybe to have them all there at once so people don't have to wait eight months in between. I know a lot of people get really frustrated with long waits between books. Sometimes that's because the writer is behind, and sometimes that's because the publisher is behind. So I've written the, all three books. There's no reason why they shouldn't come out on time in reasonably rapid pace. So I think that's ultimately, I think it's a good thing. And let me just ask you a little bit about your approach to writing. Had you plotted everything out in advance, or do you just kind of uh, write as you go and, and iron out the plot as you're, as you're living through the writing? More and more, I'm a, a plotter and an outliner. I started off as being a pantser, so I just sort of had what I thought was probably a pretty good idea in my head what the book was going to be like, but it turns out like what in my head was a pretty good idea what the book was going to be like was actually a pretty good idea what the first 50 pages was going to be like, and then maybe the end, and then a big gap in between. So in my, in my early books, Norse Code, I remember that's maybe like a 75,000-word book, and I remember one day having to throw out 30,000 words just because I'd written myself into a corner that was not a place I should have gone. So I found the more and more I outline, the faster my books get written and the less anguish, the less likely I'm going to want to stab my eyes out with, you know, broken glass uh, happens. So I've become a big believer in outlines to the point that the book I'm currently writing, I'm, or I'm not even writing prose. I, have, I didn't start writing prose until I had a complete outline. And that means like chapter by chapter breakdown. Jim McDonald, I think, uh, who's a science fiction and fantasy writer, says that uh, if you have an outline and get lost, you have an outline. If you don't have an outline and get lost, you have nothing. So I'd rather have something than nothing. Very good. I hope you can salvage some of the 30,000 words that you... Nope. Nope, nope. nope. Those, that, that was for Norse code, and those 30,000 words are gone and dead. I don't even know where they are anymore. They were bad, bad, bad words. They should never have lived. So I... I beat them with a hammer. I see. All right. So no one else can eat them, to use the osteomancer metaphor there, to, to digest them and turn them into something else. Nobody would want to. Got it. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your sharing your thoughts with me and our listeners about California Bones. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Greg Van Eekout. He is the author of California Bones. That is the first book in his trilogy. Does the trilogy have a name? Uh, it looks like they're calling it the California Bones Trilogy. So I, I, I thought I had to put in a lot of time thinking of uh, a name for the series, but I think the publisher just said California Bones series is fine. So there it is. Very catchy. It's great. Folks can look for the next installment planned for January and then the third one hopefully in the fall of 2015. Yep. So, Greg, if people want to find out more about your writing and, and what you're up to, uh, do you have a website or a blog that people can turn to? Yeah, uh, you can check me out at writingandsnacks.com, or if you can't remember that, gregvaneekout.com goes to the same place. And I'm on Twitter at gregvaneekout, just one word. Fantastic. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time to talk with me. I am Rob Wolf, the new host of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, which is part of the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to keep listening and Subscribe to the feed on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. You can also uh, reach me at my website, www.robwolf.net. And I think the Valkyries and the gods are hopefully smiling on this inaugural podcast because they certainly are raining very hard here in New York. Uh, again, Greg, thanks so much, and I look forward to uh, reading, reading the, the next books in the series as they come out. 
Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was epic thunder, by the way. That was awesome. Yeah, right? I have headphones on and I could hear it through. Yeah, yeah that was badass. Cool. That's good. I think that's auspicious. You're the expert at that. You're the expert at, like, so that's good, right? I think thunder is never bad. Thunder is never bad. That's, that's you know, that's that's a cool sound effect. As long as you're inside, not on a golf course, standing under a tree or something. Oh, yeah. No, getting electrocuted sucks. So, <laughs> so that part's not so good. But, yeah, you're inside, you're safe. That's cool.